Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. They should just all go in the same shuttle bus. <laughs> Anna Wintour is not getting in a shuttle bus. Um, well, not her. We wouldn't make Anna do Her it. car pulls right up to the front door. She her helicopter. <laughs> this is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and The Wall Street Journal. Fashion Weeks are upon us, and we're here for it. Copenhagen was held a couple of weeks ago, and sustainability was front and center in addition to the fashion. And the show made a real bid to be included among the Fab Four of Fashion Weeks, New York, London, Paris, and Milan. We'll preview these upcoming shows, talk about what we expect to see, and who to watch in sustainable fashion. I'll be in New York and Milan myself, and I'm really curious to see how much really sustainable fashion we see. Then we're going to step back and look at whether Fashion Weeks can truly be sustainable. We hope so. And of course, we'll finish with things big and little that are pressing our buttons. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is back in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks, Christina. And it's her birthday. And it's my birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> I'm blowing out Christina, a candle. you're a triple threat. Yes. <laughs> The CEO of Thrilling, Sheila Kim Parker, who we just heard from, is coming to us, as always, from South Salem, New York. Hey, Sheila. Hi there. So let's leap right in with our, we have bummers and beacons. We're going to start with the bummers so we can get the bad news out of the way first. Um, Really bad news. My social feeds and news feeds have been full of the Pakistan floods, the floods Mm. in Pakistan. It's hard to watch. Have you seen these images of just... Oh, I saw a hotel, a huge hotel, just disappear into floodwaters. I think like a a third of the country is underwater. Is that? That's what I it's read. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Something like yeah. up to 1,400 dead, right, that they know of? Yeah. And they're, they're also like a primary producer of cotton. They produce about 6% of the world's cotton supply. And have a huge... A huge cotton industry in the country, right? Yeah, they, they do. And what's most interesting is that I, I was looking into it. So 6% doesn't seem like that much. However, they are also the third largest consumer of cotton because they are the third largest yarn producer and second largest yarn yeah. exporter. So I'm guessing they use a lot of their cotton that they produce in their country to make our textiles. Yeah, I mean... Clearly a fashion impact, but I feel like with so many of the climate emergencies we've seen this past summer, it's the scale that's just so mind-blowing in terms of the human impact. And um, as you mentioned, I think, Christina, over a thousand people have died, a a million-plus homes damaged and destroyed, roads and bridges washed away. I think a quarter of the population is displaced, so 50 million folks displaced. And I didn't realize, so um, all this flooding caused by their weeks of extreme rainfall, Mm -hmm. but then also melting glaciers. And I didn't know that Pakistan has more glaciers than anywhere outside the polar regions, over 7,500 glaciers. Wow. I saw that too yesterday. Somewhere was reporting that a significant amount of this is actually melting glacier, not not just the rain. Because the rain is normal. It's a monsoon season. Right, exactly. Um, But the the glaciers melting isn't normal. The human impact is going to go beyond that. I, I was speaking with a, a fashion designer last week, Nina McLemore, who designs. She's not, 
Her name is not on the tip of everybody's tongues, but if you've seen Janet Yellen or Hillary Clinton or um, Elizabeth Warren, you've seen her clothes because she dresses a lot of female politicians. And she was saying she's concerned about her cotton sourcing because um, first there's the Uyghur laws. So we're not getting as much cotton out of China because we're trying to protect forced labor there. And now she was she was the first person who actually told me about the concerns about the floods in Pakistan impacting the cotton supply and her supply. And then I, I noted somewhere, I read in a newspaper in Pakistan actually, was reporting that since August 19th, I mean, this is today is August 30th. So we're talking within the last two weeks, the price of cotton has risen 8%. Mm. That's huge. Yeah. For producers, I mean, when you th- if that that's the price of raw cotton, so if you then take that and extend that into the retail price of a garment, yep, that's a massive increase in the cost of a cotton garment. So it's going to be wild to see all of this sort of working its way through the economy for the next year. Did you see that um, Pakistan has a minister for climate change? Mm. She's been in no. the press talking about this crisis and how it's clearly linked to you know, the warming of the planet. And um, she said this quote that stuck with me, it is climate dystopia at our doorstep. Yeah. It does, and it does feel like that, doesn't it? It does, and it's what they've been predicting. And unfortunately, they didn't cause it. And most of the places that are going to be most impacted um, by climate change, like Pakistan, they're quickly eclipsing Hurricane Katrina yeah. numbers in terms of homes and, and, and folks who've passed away. And I know they're campaigning now for some international aid, and I hope that the whole world steps up for this humanitarian crisis. Well, that was a bummer. It really was a bummer. But we have good news. We have beacons of hope as well. As a matter of fact, we saw um, this week in the news, Stella McCartney um, has started a sustainability solutions fund. So back up, Stella McCartney, yes, the daughter of Paul McCartney, but for many years, she was the first of um, saying luxury fashion brands could also attempt to be sustainable. She was one of the early luxury brands to start exploring you know, leather made with mushrooms, for instance. And now she's partnered with LVMH, which is, you know, a a behemoth in the industry to do the sustainability fund. Does Stella McCartney stop? I mean, she is always up to very interesting, complicated, innovative things year after year, quarter after quarter. And it's impressive. I I did notice that um, that this fund uh, is also uh, investing in natural fiber welding, which is one of the more innovative recycling technologies and material science companies out there. And Bolt Threads, uh, who is making mycelium leather that Stella has used. That's the mushroom leather, right? Mycelium is a a fungus. Yeah. Yeah. So her fund, $200 million fund, I believe in partnership with Collaborative Fund, which is a Fairly well-known um, venture capital fund based in New York, looking for Series A, Series B startup investments. And it sounded like, from what I read, not just fashion. It says they, in, they invested in Tesla and Square Roots, and Square Roots is actually uh, Elon Musk's brother's company, Kimball Musk's company. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's agriculture-related mm-hmm. then, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't Kimball into ag? Yeah, yep. okay. I was intrigued by one of their investments, Protein Evolution, leading the development of an enzyme that will break down plastic and therefore make bottles infinitely recyclable. I hope they're infinitely recyclable in the form of all the clothing we see. Right. I have this like trigger now every time I see a fashion brand bragging that their stuff is made by from recycled bottles. I'm like, ah, no. Yeah. <laughs> you think it's good? It's not. Don't pass go. For me personally, this is a beacon of righteousness, if not hope. Um, we saw 
one of the biggest mergers I recall, most important mergers being announced um, in fashion. It's not always described as a, a merger, but essentially Farfetch is merging with YNAP, which is Ukes and net These are three um, big innovators of online selling. They each came at it from their own direction. They are now going to end up essentially as one company. There are a couple of set steps to that that may take a couple of years. But while the headlines were all about what's going on with Richemont, which owns YNAP and is is selling it essentially to Net-a-Porte um, in return for a big stake in the company. As I'm watching that whole thing play out, I'm thinking of Natalie Massonette, who was the founder of Net-a-Porte. I remember when she started it, she had been a fashion media executive actually for years and at various times has been whispered that she might be the next Anna Wintour. That's clearly not what she wants at this point. But she was knocking on doors and, and trying to convince luxury brands to sell online back before they almost anybody was doing it. Nobody believed in her. They all thought it was a pipe dream. And she turned it into what we now know as, as Net-a-Porte. And then she got shoved out of the company. She founded it in 2000, and by 2015, it had merged with Ukes, which was an Italian company that really started out as doing sort of -of back-of-house digital stuff. So they they would go, for instance, to Armani and say, you operate your stores and we'll give you the platform to sell online. And she got pushed out of Ukes, which I found just shocking and also probably a huge mistake yeah. <laughs> for for the merged company. She popped up two years later as co-chairman of Farfetch, and Farfetch had come in after with the idea of selling clothes by, from individual stores. It was sort of like the new version of what of what you do, Sheila. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's that's really what Farfetch was initially. Now, you know, we see all this stuff mixed up. But when, when, when it was announced that Natalie was going to Farfetch, I thought, well, that's brilliant. We're going to see some really interesting things coming for Farfetch, which we have, um, including now this whole deal with Farfetch coming back and, you know, merging with, with YNAP. So um, I, this is a long way <laughs> of saying I think Natalie Mazzanet is like the Steve Jobs of yeah. the fashion online industry. You know, Steve Jobs founded Apple, got booted out, came back and saved it. So let's let's watch Natalie. Rise like a phoenix. Justice yeah. for a female founder. That's great. Yes. I love it. I, I will say, by the way, we don't have to feel sorry for Natalie. She's a billionaire. She's, right. found, she's <laughs> founded a big VC fund. She can just <laughs> celebrate cheer, her. Cheer, yeah, we'll celebrate and cheer for her. Let's move on to uh, Fashion Month, which is coming up. Um, and although essentially we think of Fashion Month as being New York followed by London, followed Milan, followed by Paris Fashion Week. In a sense, it almost it already began um, because we had Copenhagen Fashion Week. And, you know, in my time covering fashion, people have largely sneered at Fashion Weeks that weren't, weren't one of the Fab Four. And that is no longer the case with Copenhagen. They have broken through. I think we're going to, on the verge of having the Fab Five Fashion Weeks. You cannot ignore the fashions coming out of Copenhagen Fashion Week. People talk about Scandinavian fashion all the time, but that's really because of Copenhagen. You guys, I think, may know more about this than I do, but sustainability has been the major plank that they've stood on to build that week, right? I don't typically follow fashion weeks because I've been so in the 
back end of reverse supply chain for so many years. But mm-hmm. I do know how important the Copenhagen Fashion Summit is to sustainability and how important innovation coming out of, you know, Scandinavia in general is um, to fashion. I mean, there's so many material science and recycling companies. And I mean, they have a, like an ethos unlike any other around sustainability in Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Norway. I mean, it, it really is kind of integral to who they are as a culture. So it doesn't surprise me that if they were to become very known for design, which they already are with Scandinavian design, I mean, they have this uh, tradition of making things uh, really like world class uh, in, in in their beauty. Uh, so it's kind of unstoppable and an unstoppable force now combining sustainability with their their history of, um, you know, being world-class designers. And I think it's, this is their moment. When anyone who is uh, world-class right now steps up to the plate in sustainability, um, it really sets you apart. And that's what they've done. I also was uh, amazed, um, just like you, you both said, how much Copenhagen Fashion Week news and imagery was coming onto my feeds from every angle. Mm -hmm. But the thing that really struck me the most was the diversity of the runways and of the street style shots. And I just, this is a country that's 86% white and three three quarters (laughs) Lutheran. This is not a diverse country. (laughs) Diverse in their attitudes, right? Right. And they, I mean, and and there was was racial, cultural, and size, and And age diversity. Like co-ed fashion shows. I mean, you have it all. Like upcycling, colors, street style. I love that. And I also loved, you know, the the principles they're mandating for companies who want to show by 2023, you know, can't have fur. They must have a diverse Mm -hmm. management team and diverse models. No single-use plastic in their stores or fulfilling e-commerce orders. So this is beyond the runway. They're asking for those mandates. They can't destroy unsold clothes. 50% of their collection made from sustainable or upcycled materials. Those are some of the, I, I think there are 18 principles that companies have to um, align with. And um, those are some of the ones that stood out to me. It's awesome. And, you know, the thing is, you can't ignore those things because they've made their creds in the actual fashion. So I, I'll, I don't know that we're going to see Paris Fashion Week adopting uh, what, what Copenhagen is doing, but it, it's going to leach through slowly. I don't think they could because it's such a legacy culture. But what I do think is interesting is they're really showing their nimbleness because to my point about Scandinavian design, that was so like based on muted, sort of soft, feminine, uh, like a very different approach to design. And now, and that's how everybody thought about Scandinavian design and they're proving themselves to be really nimble and diverse and uh, have a lot to say, which extends beyond just fashion. It's, It's really, you know, putting a stake in the ground about um, who they are and how they view the world. Fashion weeks are like trade shows, right? I mean, they're they're selling the collections that they want to see in stores in, in six months from now. So these the fashion months that we're just seeing, Copenhagen and then the Fab Four that are coming, these are the spring 23 shows. So they'll be shown on runways in the next month. You, generally the week after they're on the runways, the brands are all in their showrooms and they're meeting with store uh, buyers and people are placing orders. And then over the next couple of months, those orders will be 
turned into actual clothes. Some of the clothes that we see on the runway, it's a, a roughly 20% of the clothes that you see on the runway actually get manufactured. That's an unbelievable stat. Yeah. It's very, well, they're, they're putting out a lot of editorial stuff right. that not too many people would actually wear. You know, a fashion show has dual purposes. It's, it's partly for the store buyers mm-hmm. to buy stuff so they can sell it. And it's partly to get the attention of the fashion editors in the fashion magazine so they have stuff right. to put on their pages to do editorials that will then sort of hype the brands that mm-hmm. they show stuff with. Mm-hmm. And plain old commercial clothes don't really sing on a fashion editorial. <laughs> so that it's it's a it's a tight I'm so for glad designers. you answered that because I was going to ask you Christina, you know, what is the purpose of a fashion show especially in this modern day and age and who is mm-hmm. truly the intended audience? Um because it does feel like so much can be achieved virtually. There are plenty of brands that do just fine without right. a fashion show and without runways, right? It is, it is by no means necessary, and it's certainly less necessary now than it was 10 or 20 years ago. I think we saw during the pandemic when they couldn't have fashion shows for several seasons that people did some pretty nimble transitions. It took it took a couple seasons, and then we started to see real growth and output and sort of interesting approaches to how you show digitally, um, Eddie Slamane just went full on Hollywood, rent a castle, get drones, like, you know, they're essentially fashion films. And Rick Owen, he still did runways, but he moved them to um, locations outside of Paris where he normally shows and these beautiful places that he loves. But the truth is that part mm. of it is about prestige mm-hmm. and owning your spot on the calendar mm. and who you get in your front row. And a lot of the designers that show, they live from show to show. They love it. It's theater. I'm honestly surprised because there was so much conversation at the beginning of pandemic about how this could be a moment of true reset. And in fact, notable journalist Christina yeah. Binkley wrote a piece for Vogue <laughs> Business in May 2020 titled, The Fashion Show as We Know It Is Over. And so I think, you know, there was so much <laughs> there was so much conversation among all the labels about this is our moment to really do a reset because it's not sustainable from a labor practice standpoint, but also from a sustainability of our business and, you know, climate impact perspective. And so for it all to come back and kind of have this rush to normalcy, and I think there are more shows than never this season. But I would argue that even before the pandemic the fashion show as we know it is over, meaning that the industry, there are so many brands out there. What, the CFDA has 100 brands on the calendar? How many brands are really out there that we see on Instagram and um, D2C brands and brands you can't even remember the names of? But I don't think fashion is just that anymore. Fashion is resale. Fashion is rental. Fashion is so much more than any of the calendars represent. And so I do still think it's the fashion show as we know it's dying. I 100% agree for probably 90% of fashion brands. And then there are the brands that can really afford to do the fashion show and use it on their platforms in a million different ways. And those are the brands who, they know how to leverage it. And it becomes content. I think another reason why I'm surprised, maybe a little bit disappointed, because Christina, you you mentioned this um, a few minutes ago. There was so much creativity. And do you you remember, there was this show called Pink Label Congo. It was a Congolese designer, um, Anifa Mbweba, I think is her name. She was going to show um, at early 2020, and then obviously all the shows got canceled. And so she, with no computer science, 
training, no formal engineering training, figured out how to digitally present her clothes on these ghost-like models. So they didn't have a head or legs or arms, but they moved on the runway as if, like, you would swear that she photoshopped out. And it's these curvy, muscular models and you, everyone has got to Google oh, Pink Label Congo 2020 runway show. The imagery was so striking. And I remember she gained this viral fame. And I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be great for the fashion industry because clearly they can use her know-how and this talent to really rethink the format. Some are and some aren't. I mean, I guess that's one of the things is it's like herding cats, the fashion industry. It's yeah. one of the few industries that anybody can literally start it on their dining room table. And so you've got constant churn of new brands coming on, especially with D to C, because when you can sell direct to consumer, you don't have to sort of make your way through the, the wholesale landscape. Yeah, and Christina, you and I have talked about this too. I mean, even during the formal fashion weeks, the brands who aren't on the calendar often hold events, whether they're fashion shows or not. Like Christopher Rayburn, he's a tremendous sort of uh, upcycling designer. I think he's worked with Timberland and he has his own line and he's using fashion week to hold like an art show, which supports other sort of responsible designers and show their work and, and turn it into sort of an experience rather than a traditional fashion show. We hear about him because he has he has more of a name brand, but I think there's a lot of designers who might be just um, a little bit less, less well-known who are doing tremendously interesting things. We've got Fendi, Marnie, and Cause, which are all European fashion brands showing during New York Fashion Week. Mm. Um, that's unusual, and, and, and clearly there's a push to try to get more Europeans to come back to New York Fashion Week because they, they, they had been virtually boycotting it since the pandemic, just as, as sort of less necessary. New York Fashion Week often gets criticized for being too commercial, which is pretty funny right. because it's a commercial industry. Right. Like compared to what? That is the point. Compared to what? Making well, clothes you can wear. Exactly. And that leads us into sort of the sustainability conversation around the climate impact of, of fashion weeks. It's estimated that, you know, all fashion weeks combined, their carbon uh, impact is equal to lighting up Times Square for 58 years each year. Oh, yeah. Wow. So that would include traveling, accommodation, transportation, you know, uh, traveling of models. It's about 51,000 cars on the road. So all, all, all fashion weeks combined is about 51,000 cars on the road. So, so it's not... An insignificant amount of climate impact. And on the other hand, there's interesting technology, like um, there's a company called Jour.com, J-O-O-R.com. They're a digital showroom platform enabling um, the showing, buying, and selling of wholesale online. And I think that even larger brands are probably leveraging this, um, you know, in addition to Fashion Week. But I know that smaller brands that would never even think about holding a fashion show or might have a fashion event, but not your traditional fashion calendar show, um, they depend on this sort of digital sales enablement that wasn't available even, you know, 10 years ago. And the pandemic gave it a huge boost. Exactly. I started hearing from... American department stores about it. I mean, I, I know for a fact that it has enabled Nordstrom's buyers yeah. to have more of a life, for instance. I mean, store buyers have had crazy schedules crazy. because they have to fly all over the world to buy everything in person. It's a really horrendous schedule. Mm. 
But Nordstrom is really, well, I don't know about this season, but I know in the past few seasons, they've really cut back on the travel because they there's Jor, there's a couple of them. I'm forgetting the, other, the name of another big competitor of Jor, but you can buy online and it, these apps do everything for you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have your little spreadsheet <laughs> on your laptop, you know, where you're adding up what you're available to spend is and that kind of thing. Another part of the the waste equation is also the set design. And so much of that ends up not being recycled. So many miles of carpet. Most fashion shows don't want to use the floor that's in the venue that they have the fashion show. New York Fashion Week used to be much easier when it was at the tents. When that went away and everybody wanted to have their own venue, then you start getting these really elaborate sets. And when you ask the questions, the brands will never tell you where that stuff goes, but it's brand (laughs) carpet and it's miles and miles of it. And it's been cut for that venue, for that runway. Then sometimes they put, they cover it with plastic. So it stays clean while everybody walks into the fashion show. And then they have all these people run out like squirrels and pull away the plastic so that you have the pristine runway and all that plastic goes, it's, it's like saran wrap, but Miles of it. Well, speaking of which, there's, there, you know, I was trying to understand sort of some of the um, initiatives that are going into making these shows more climate friendly and socially friendly. And it's, it reminds me a lot of trying to understand how the fashion industry in general is trying to clean up their supply chains. There's all these new sort of governing bodies and governing guidelines to um, inform different brands on how to produce a more sustainable fashion show. Caring has its own green fashion show guidelines. I think that might have been mentioned. Gucci is using carbon neutral targets. Um, Paris's hot Oak Couture organization, FHCM, released a social and environmental impact measurement tool for, for fashion events. I thought it was interesting that Gucci has been sort of certifying its fashion shows as carbon neutral since 2020. Um, you know, they're focusing on renting materials, local catering, avoiding single-use plastic. So there's all these different sort of guidelines, and I think we're going to see that become more – it's just probably going to be – uh, equally as complicated as the amount of guidelines we have for the front end of the supply chain, but brands will start using their own guidelines to um, yeah. clean up their sort of impact. You see this in more independent designers um, in the shows, but they're doing uh, creative things like using the the products that they have purchased to produce their su- runway show um, uh, to produce other things afterwards and maybe sell it and donate those um, funds to charity or um, uh, these are designers. I mean, these are materials. There's so much creative opportunity here for waste. Um, It's not always cost friendly. I think that's what it comes down to. And it's everybody is under a time crunch when you're traveling. And and, I mean, not for nothing, the biggest impact of fashion is in textile production. (laughs) So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's probably the flights that have the biggest impact. And then the cars. Fashion Week traffic in Milan is insane. Really? Because they have a really good metro system, but during Fashion Week, it's all these black limousines and black vans that are ferrying fashion editors around, and and they're going to a different appointment every hour on the hour, starting at 9 o'clock in the morning and going until 10 o'clock at night. And, and And when it shows, they all are going to the same place in their own separate vehicle. I'm um, cheered by some of what Rachel shared, which is, you know, um, there is a lot of attention and movement on how do we make these events more sustainable. Um, and and I do feel like um, with good reason, um, but as usual, fashion is kind of leading the way and, and there's tons of other industries that are 
rushing back to normal with their in-person events and gatherings, business conferences. Mm -hmm. That's almost back to pre-pandemic Norval's music festivals generate a hundred tons of waste per day. Mm. Um, So, you know, I'm glad that fashion is leading the way in how to think, how to be more thoughtful about hosting in-person events. I want to ask Christina some, some, who are you excited to see at these events? What's your most anticipated show this year? Do you have one? Oh God. Um, let's see. Well, usually, usually that will always be when a new designer is debuting at a brand, right? And I don't think there's anything on the horizon. Am I missing one? I, something's nagging at me that maybe I'm missing one. I'm really looking forward to seeing Gabriella Hurst. Yeah. Um, she has a big focus on sustainability, and she focuses on it in, you know, in all the small little ways that don't make headlines. She's very um, earnest about it in, she in the totally best way possible. Is. Yeah. I feel like last season was the NFT season. Everybody was Mm. doing an NFT. So I'm super curious to find out how many NFTs we see this time. And I'm really curious to see sustainability and sustainability claims, which, as we all know, are Mm -hmm. two different things, right? Like, Mm -hmm. are we seeing things that are more sustainable? New York went almost entirely to digital invitations, which is fantastic because they're just on your phone and you don't have to cart an entire day's worth of elaborate invitations in your bag. Milan, they still want to deliver invitations to you. But one thing I have noticed in uh, the last few seasons is they're mostly on cardstock, which is way more sustainable than the huge hunks of plastic and metal and leather um, that they used to try to do to sort of get attention for their... Or sometimes you'd get a, like an entire box and, you know, peel out and it's just like there's a little invitation in it. It's incredibly wasteful. So I, th- I think that they're moving in the right direction. You know, all eyes are going to be on Louis Vuitton mm. for Ferris Fashion Week. You know, is there going to be a successor to Virgil announced? There's right. rumors that it will be. Now, it's these are the women's shows. So Virgil um, would, would have been showing off-white, but not Louis Vuitton this season. Because um, Nicholas Gasquier still is doing the women's collections there, but that's going to be like you know keep your keep your ear to the rails. <laughs> Let me know if you hear that one. That's we'll have news be a to report on. I think this brings us to our hot button this week. Anybody want to go first? I can go first. Um, it was brought to our attention by one of our producers that s- uh, September is uh, actually secondhand September. Which Woo! we're very excited about very exciting. on the show. And we were wondering why we didn't know that there was a secondhand September. We thought maybe this was more <laughs> primarily a UK-based holiday. And, but if it is, we're starting it here in the U.S. right now, secondhand September. And we've decided that we are going to dedicate the month of S- September to exploring resale in all its shapes and forms. And there are so many different innovations and, and companies out there, um, both resale companies uh, in and of themselves, companies that are powering resale for brands, companies that are doing both peer-to-peer resale, um, infrastructure plays who are supporting other resale companies. We're going to take some time and break it down so it's more uh, palatable and comprehensible (laughs) than I just explained it and more interesting and bring some people on who can speak about their businesses and their experience and and really celebrate secondhand September. I love it. I feel like every time I open my email 
I have another email about another brand launching resale. Mm-hmm. The, like, yeah. Literally, it's been a, a rush in the last couple of weeks. Yes. It is the future. They have to. Absolutely. Very exciting. And we have an expert. Yeah. Here, <laughs> I know a little bit about Shilkin Parker. It's secondhand September every month <laughs> over here. <laughs> <laughs> Shilla, what's your hot button? Um, well, mine is not necessarily fashion related, but I cannot believe how much I want to see uh, this uh, biopic on Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Tell us more. the promo footage for it? So it's, no. It's, no. It, it stars Daniel Radcliffe as um, Al Yankovic and Will Ferrell's also in the cast. And it's going to be released on September 8th on Roku. But it is so funny. You guys have to Google the the trailer for this movie. It's hysterical. Like, I thought it was going to be a serious kind of documentary. And he clearly, of course, true to form, made this hilarious parody of other music biopics. <laughs> and the trailer okay. will have I'm you in, in stitches. Um, he has kind of this rock star, uh, doesn't give a f- like energy, he's sleeping with Madonna. Like that that's the <laughs> it's it's hysterical. I mean, you know what? I also am really proud of Daniel Radcliffe for um being cast in Harry Potter at age twelve and mm-hmm. getting all that fame and money and attention. And I think he's made really fun, interesting artistic mm-hmm. choices outside of kind of his big franchise, which is obviously, you know, that's the moneymaker. But he's he's made really yeah. interesting, cool, weird choices. He didn't let himself get pigeonholed. Yeah, absolutely. I love yeah. that. Okay. What's yours? Well, mine is also not fashion-related, but I was completely gripped this morning by an article that came out of one of the um it was one of the publications that's sort of covering statesmanship and and war and it was a headline about Zelensky's father so Zelensky the president of Ukraine who's become a global hero for the way uh, you know he's sort of leading the 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 defense against the Russian invasion and it turns out that he grew up in this little village and his dad, or a small town, not a little village, his dad is a university professor and is still a university professor and is still teaching and living in an apartment where everybody in town know where, knows where he lives and it's 25 miles from the front in Dnipro. Mm. <laughs> I'm just wow. thinking, shouldn't they get him out of there? <laughs> like, he's what the are you doing? father of the president of Ukraine. Oh my God. Anyway, I just, I was, I suddenly was just like, I, my brain went to the Hollywood version of that film and them having to like drop in and, and extricate the president's father. There's something in that gene pool. Tough people. (laughs) It did. The article did say that that, that town had the highest crime rate of any town in Ukraine at the time, at the period that Zelensky was growing up and had a big problem with gangs. And he wasn't part of that because he and his wife, who he met in that town, came from um, university professor families. Mm -hmm. But um, there were some people who were speculating that it probably toughened him and has a lot to do with his approach to battling this whole situation that they've had since February 24th. So my hot button is Zelensky's dad. (laughs) (laughs) Make that hey. man safe. Yeah. On that note, <laughs> get 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 one of the Fashion Week choppers to <laughs> get over there and get him out. <laughs> Natalie Massonet, we have a job right. for you. <laughs> 
that's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter. We're at Hot Buttons Pod. Or send a link to friends and colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music now. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com or leave us a voicemail at our new call-in line. It's at 508-622-5361. So give us a call, 508-622-5361. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Sheila Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Phil Frank and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. You could make a movie out of this thing. It would right. be, a th- it would be like a thriller. You'd it's it's it. fashion's version of Succession. Yes, exactly. They need each other, uh. but they don't want each other. <laughs>